Unlocking Your World of Creativity with Mark Stinson. Copyright 2021. Welcome back, friends, to another episode of Unlocking Your World of Creativity, the podcast where we talk to creative artists and practitioners all over the world to learn how they come up with their original thinking, how they organize those ideas, and then most of all, how they get the confidence and the connections to launch their work up and out into the world. And today we're stamping our virtual creative passport through London Heathrow, right to the northwest of London near Wembley Stadium. And our guest is author Harry Shapiro. Harry, welcome to the program. Well, this is great. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, and we're going to have some fun talking about rock and biographies. Uh, mm -hmm. Harry is a rock biographer, and he's written about Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Graham Bond, Jack Bruce, and many others. He's written for a number of magazines, including Mojo, Classic Rock, Record Collector, and Blues in Britain. So he's got a wide range of creative interests and insights on the rock musicians that we all know and love. Now, Harry, before we get into all that, I loved a footnote in your bio that said you've also had a chance to write a lot of liner notes for various record labels. <laughs> and I, I believe that at the demographics of our audience, uh, a lot of people do know what a liner note is, despite Indeed. our digital world. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're those things that when C CDs started, I mean, they've mainly been for CDs, and the font size of a CD liner note yes. is not geared to a readership of a certain age. Right. <laughs> I always thought they should hand out the readers with the liner notes. But but who hasn't sat with their LPs and uh, taken out the album and the, the paper sleeve and read every word about their favorite artist, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've, I've done a fair, mostly blues and R&B artists, Freddie King, Albert King, Sunny Terry and Brownie McGee, um, some British blues musicians uh, like Stan Webb from Chicken Shack, who had Christine Perfect in its in its ranks, who went on to to join Fleetwood Mac. So those those and some rock artists as well. Pacific Gas and Electric several years ago. So yeah, a fairly eclectic mix of people I've been asked to yeah to, to write Dion as well. Oh, that's fine. Well, Harry, we're going to cover a lot of creative territory, and I want to start by thinking about the creative insights that you gain from writing these biographies. And then, of course, we want to talk about your own creative process and some new projects that you're working on. But when, when we mention names like Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton, I mean, the, these are colorful, well-known you know, icons in the rock music business. What what did you learn about their creative process and how they created their music? And, you know, not just their crazy lifestyles, but I mean, the, no, no, the music no. side of things. I think Hendrix was probably the more interesting of, of the two because he was very much, in a sense, off stage. He was very much not Jimi Hendrix. He was not the the guitar smashing, set fire kind of that that image that everybody has of uh, of Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix was a supreme perfectionist, and I think the most comfortable place for Hendrix was in a recording studio, somewhere like Electric Lady in New York, which was built and designed specifically for him, using money from Warner Brothers 
and and possibly some other more dubious financial sources that his manager managed to pull together. Mike Jeffrey, very, very shadowy character. Um, but he would sit there for hours on his on his own. Um, and to some extent, it would drive other band members potty because because they'd record a guitar solo, for example. And Jimmy would want to go over and over and over. And they would just kind of fed up with Noel Redding and, and Mitch Mitch. Just oh, for God's sake, you know, that that's nothing wrong with it. No, I want to. And the other thing is that the the work that he did with Eddie Kramer, particularly in that studio, came up with some amazing uh, electronic effects. And in fact, I think Jimi Hendrix was probably the first musician, maybe the only musician really, who, I mean, up until then, electricity, technology was all about making things louder. So you had huge banks of amps and you had electric guitars and the whole business of that was to project a huge sound. What Hendrix did was he actually turned that process into an instrument in its own right, working with, with a producer like Eddie Kramer. So you get an album like the Electric Ladyland album and you can, you can tell how advanced it was by the simple fact that it doesn't sound dated. I mean, most of it, a lot of the albums from that period sound like albums that were made, you know, in the 1960s and early 70s. You know, the, they sound like they've been recorded behind a brick wall, quite a lot of them, you know, fairly terrible recording processes, yes. primitive recording processes. But, but a Hendrix album, I mean, Electric Ladyland's the best example, but all of them really, if you listen to them, they, they're very advanced in a different way to the Beatles albums and George Martin, who kind of went for kind of all sorts of weird sounds and running tape backwards and, and all of that. So there's a different process. Um, and it's so interesting, Harry, that you say this because, and you, you touched on this, that we mainly have this image, this persona of Jimi Hendrix, you know, as the performer, as mm. the stage presence, right? And yet you're describing this sort of internal creative process as a writer, as a musician, you know, in the studio. It's just yeah. an interesting contrast. Yeah. And in fact, in the end, uh, I mean, Jimi Hendrix, although in, in a sense, he painted himself into a corner when, when he started out with all the kind of, you know, guitar behind the neck and between the legs and all of that. But at one point he told a reporter, he said, I just, I don't want to be a clown anymore. You know, I've, I've, I've had enough of doing all of this. Uh, and you can see from the, the iconic Woodstock performance, yeah, there were no histrionics in, in when he was doing that, you know, the famous um, Star Spangled Banner. Mm -hmm. He just pulled it all together. Like I say, if you wanted one iconic moment of rock music in the 60s, it was Jimi Hendrix at, at, at Woodstock playing the Star Spangled Banner. It all seemed to come together in that moment when he had left behind this, all these kind of theatricals. And I think had he survived, had he, had he not passed away when he did, then obviously lots of speculation on what he would have done. Mm -hmm. But I'm pretty certain that at 50 or 60, he wouldn't have been setting fire to his guitar. That I'm pretty certain. Yes, yes. Well, let's talk about another artist, uh, Clapton. And mm -hmm. who, you know, again, brought a lot of this 
old blues music into the present and really, yeah. uh, you know, brought a lot of uh, awareness and, you know, recollection to some of these older blues artists. Yes, he did indeed. Uh, he was kind of, in a sense, there's quite a, an interesting parallel with Robert Johnson because Robert Johnson was very much um, a, a popularizer of other blues. I mean, he learned from Blind Lemon Jefferson and, and Blind Willie Johnson and Charlie Patton and all those people. And he melded those styles into something that was his own, that became recognized as the Robert Johnson sound. And I think Eric did the same kind of thing with his idols, Albert King, B.B. King, Otis Rush, Muddy Waters, all of those people. And he, he, he brought that music, because of course, you, those guys, in fact, in the 1960s, all of those big blues musicians, with possible exception of B.B. King, but even him to a certain extent, were losing their audience. They were losing their audience at that time because the, the young black Afro-American Afro community, they want to hear about, you know, got my mojo working and smokestack lightning. I mean, as far as they were concerned, it was basically slave music. You know, it was old stuff that old blokes played. Yeah, they were, they were like Marvin Gaye and Tamla Motown, James Brown. And that, that was, you know, that was the music. Blues was no music to be proud of. And like it or not, and some people don't, it was the likes of, of Eric Clapton and Michael Bloomfield and Paul Butterfield from, from and even the Stones and the Animals as well. We have to bear the, the British invasion. Um, I mean, the Stones refused to do a TV show unless Howling Wolf was on the bill as well. So they, they collectively, um, popularized and in fact <laughs> sold the blues back to America <laughs> because yeah, no, exactly. a, lot, a lot yeah uh, and I've spoken to a lot of people recently for the book I'm writing at the moment who really knew nothing about my, and these are people who were living in the south <laughs> and right. knew nothing about these people until the Beatles and the animals and cream and stones and Hendrix and all these people suddenly laid it out for them on a plate thing with uh, Clapton of course was the fact that he was a guitarist and and like 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 Jimi Hendrix the guitar was king in earlier times the sax saxophone was king you had all the great jazz musicians and the R&B musicians but uh but guitar was king uh really cool looking Fender Strats and Gibson Les Pauls great big uh, stacks of Marshall amps powerful sound and it was the cult of virtuosity, because I think with Eric Clapton in Cream, particularly with Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker, what you had there was, was not pop music, was not, I mean, a lot of the, the, the pop bands had session musicians playing their stuff in the studio because they couldn't play half of it properly. You know, mm -hmm. they needed people who could actually play to, to get, get these records out. Um, but but here was here was um, so yeah something like Clapton where the sort of the, the girls would drool over his looks and the boys would drool over the fact that the guy was a, a superb guitar player um, and I think it was that it it was I mean every generation needs its own music and for the generation that I grew up with that was our secret our secret was John Mayo and Fleetwood Mac and Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix. 
um, even more so than like the Stones, the Animals, the Beatles, the Kinks, all of those bands that were on, uh, it were pop music as far as compared as far to. As yeah. I mean, it was great and we liked it, but it, it wasn't ours. It wasn't mm. ours in quite the way that you could go to a steamy club and 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 see and see Eric Clapton playing with John Mayer. Yeah. And, you know, you're mentioning these other uh, musicians, too. And again, the image of Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton being, you know, solo artists, you know, they're very much in the spotlight and in the front. Uh, but so many collaborations. And we talk on this podcast so much about needing collaborators to really, you know, add the layer of creativity to the work. Uh, what, what, do you, what did you find out about their collaborative nature? Well, I mean, I think Cream were a very good example of, of, of that because Eric Clapton couldn't really write songs and he couldn't really sing as well as Jack Bruce, who was the bass player, who wrote all those classic Cream songs with Pete Brown and Ginger Baker was just like the driving force. I mean, Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker came out of jazz. Eric came out of blues. And the whole jazz ethic was based around improvisation. And they were the ones really that, that I mean, Eric was having to play at 400 miles an hour just to keep ahead of these guys who were really pushing him. Hendrix was different again because he actually could do it all. He could sing and he could play and he could write songs. But he had, he had Mitch Mitchell behind him, again, a superb technical jazz drummer. And Noel Redding, who, who did what bass players are supposed to do, which is anchor the sound mm -hmm. down, which allowed Hendrix and, and uh, Mitch Mitchell to play off one another and get into all these kinds of uh, improvisations and, and, and long, long in instrumentals. But you needed the anchor to hold the whole thing together. And that was what Noel Redding did. I mean, Noel Redding wasn't even a bass player. I mean, he came to the audition for that band as a guitar player. And the manager turned around to him and said, can you play bass? And of course, what do you say in a situation right, like that? Right, right. <laughs> Is that going to get me the gig? <laughs> no worries. <laughs> uh, and he did a job. He did a job. That's fantastic. Um, well, you know, you know, I, oh, sorry. Yeah. So the other collaborative point to make, I think, which we often forget and which I, I kind of mentioned briefly, are the, rec are, are the classic record producers. And, and it's it, that often is where also offstage is where the magic is made. So you had Eddie Kramer with Jimi Hendrix. You had Tom Dowd and Felix Papalardi, who was the bass player in Mountain, uh, who produced some later Cream stuff as well. And actually, when Cream signed to Atlantic, they were basically a blues and R&B label. They had no idea how to handle a band like Cream. And it took Felix, really, and his genius in the studio to bring out the best of that band on record. Tom Dowd did the same for Eric Clapton later on as well. So I think the, the, the producers have to take an enormous amount of collaborative credit for bringing all these sounds together um, that we hear on all the, all the classic records from that period. Well, Harry, you know, I love these stories and that's why I love your books and I love the other podcasts out there that talk about this behind the music kind of stories. But I don't want to miss the chance to talk about your own creative process. So in developing these rock biographies, you're a journalist as much as you are 
just a rock aficionado of the artists. Uh, what, is, what is your approach to gathering and organizing the information to turn it into a kind of book that people want to yeah. read, not just a recitation of the facts and figures of the music? No, and I think that's a really important point there that I try not to write what I call album tour album books. And there are unfortunately quite a lot of those out there. And they are just, a, like you say, a recitation of these facts. Um, on the other hand, I think you have to, you have to have empathy with the subject. I mean, there was a, a rock writer called Albert Golden who wrote a biography of Elvis Presley and did another one of John Lennon. And he clearly hated these people. Mm. <laughs> they were awful people. Uh, and I think he was going to do one on Jim Morrison, um, and, and then he died. Not Jim Morrison, Albert Gold. Right. So you've got to, you've got to have an empathy with these people. You, 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 for me, anyway, I can't just write about some. Yeah, you know, I couldn't do a biography of Prince, for example. I mean, you know, great music artist, but doesn't speak to me because I didn't grow up with Prince. So I tend to stick to my my period. When it comes to how you go about this. Um, every book I've done has been different. The exception, I suppose, was Jack Bruce, because he was still alive. I have to say, everybody else I've written about is dead. Um, but I do start with family. I tend to start with family, with, with husbands, wives, children and whatnot, because I do feel, well, two reasons, really. One, it's important to get those people on board with the project because um, they are they are the gateway if you like to many other people the only time I didn't do that was with the Eric Clapton book which was a little bit more of an extended essay in in a sense so I it wasn't it because first of all the guy was I mean I, I wrote that book in 1991 92 so, so it was still a career in progress. I mean, some people would argue that his best days were done, but, but you know, in terms of what he did earlier on. But it was a work, he was a work in progress. His career was a work in progress. And um, so it was really a kind of o overview or my critique of his career up to that point. Mm -hmm. um, I did make some attempt to tackle, to deal with family, but I came slightly unstuck with that one because the day, let me say like this, if you imagine that you're gonna put food on the table writing rock books, then you are sorely disillusioned. Um, you're gonna go hungry? <laughs> you, you go hungry, yeah. No, my day job, um, which has actually overlapped with quite a lot of other stuff I've written, has been working for, um, for drug addiction charities in the UK, working, um, in information policy, communications, lecturing, and all the rest of it. And when I was doing the, the, the when I was doing the Clapton book, I got a phone call because I've been asking around to find people to talk to me. And I got a phone call from his manager, Robert Stigwood. I could have, I had to hold the phone at arm's length while this guy howled at me because what he thought I was going to be writing, and I had the same problem with a very new book, and I'll tell you about that later, is because he found out where I worked as a day job, and everybody knew about Eric's 
drug problems. He automatically assumed that this was some sleazy mm-hmm. kind of, you know, this expose, yeah, expose of poor Eric and his, and his, you know. So I kind of disabused him of all of this. Um, and when the book came out, yes, obviously you can't write a book about Eric Clapton and not mention it, but it really wasn't the focus of the book. But the family are important because they are the gateway. Because what happens is, is if you then go and approach other people, band members, friends, whatever, quite often the first thing they do is phone up the family. Mm. And they say, hey, this guy's just, is it okay to talk to him? Is it, is it, have you sussed him out and all the rest of it? Fortunately, so far, the answer has been yes. <laughs> and then there's a process it's a kind of parallel process because obviously with some of most of the musicians I've written about there's already a fair amount of information out there interviews books in some cases mm-hmm. like Hendrix I mean mine yeah. wasn't the this wouldn't Hendrix. always be the uh, you know fertile ground here yeah. no or, or the first time anybody's ever written yeah. well yeah exactly right the Hendrix thing when I was looking at all the Hendrix books Nobody seemed to have kind of done what I would call a, a, a rounded account. So you either had books written by musicians who play with him. You had one guy who basically thought all the white people Hendrix came in contact with ripped him off. And all the others were his mates and his friends who he could trust. And that was absolutely not the case. But that was the perspective. And then somebody else wrote a book that just talked about the drugs and the women and the group kids. You know? So m- my idea was to just kind of do a story in the round that probably encapsulated all of that, um, but didn't focus on one, you know, a more comprehensive account. And I have to say, I'm very grateful for the, for the reviews I got for that book and it got nominated for a book prize. And it was, you know, so it kind of did the business. The other thing about, about it, so you, you look about what your printed sources are and you do what you can to gather that lot together then you start the interviewing process and that gets very interesting because you soon realize that people either forget what happened they misremember what happened they try and put themselves in the best possible light or they try and put other people in the worst possible light right it's possible that they don't remember even the following morning because of whatever it was they'd been doing the night before. So it is a big triangulation process of trying to piece together. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, whenever you do a jigsaw puzzle, you've got to get the outline first. You've got to get the outside bits first. And then gradually you start filling it in and filling it in. And eventually, with a bit of luck, you get something that looks like the complete picture. I mean, you cannot write every detail. If I try to write a book about you and include everything that's ever happened to you and everyone you've ever met, you know, it would be like kind of a thousand volumes, right? So, so at that point, then you've got to decide, and this is the hard bit when you put all this work into it, what do I leave out? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do I leave out? And how do I construct something how do I construct something in scenes? So you kind of have to write in scenes to keep people interested. You know, if I suddenly wrote a book about Eric and then spent 50 pages talking about the history of the Gibson guitar, 
people would just doze off <laughs> and they would just flick what through about it the like guy this. playing it <laughs> what about the guy yeah so you, you have to wear your wear your information and your knowledge lightly as as far as possible yes so it's that kind of process that i that i go through in in trying to put these books together well, that's great thanks for a vision behind the scenes well in that light then let's uh forward fast to today and a project that you're going through that very process on in fact the one that brought us together harry tell us about the musician you're writing about now okay so in a sense what i've been done up to now is written about what i would call sung heroes so Eric Clapton and Jack Bruce and Jimi Hendrix and, and people like that, they were sung heroes. But I got hooked into the idea of an unsung hero, somebody who turned out to be little remembered and little known at the time, a Shreveport guy called Shreveport white guitarist, white blues guitarist called John Campbell. And how did I get into this? Okay, so I get a bit twitchy if I haven't got a project on the go, right? So I'm not good at not having a project because that's, yeah, that's just the way I am. So sometime, I think in the early 2000s, I was between projects and I was looking for something. I think, what's gonna be the next thing? Anyway, I was reading one of these British blues magazines and um, there was an article about this guy called John Campbell, who I'd never heard of, but it was quite, it was quite um, praiseworthy and, and, and said this guy's, you know, talked about the guy being the real deal, which is always the thing in blues. Yeah, is he the real deal? I've never quite understood what that meant, although I'm getting closer to what that actually means now. He had some albums out on Electra, which I went and bought, and, um, yeah, they, they were really good, and, but I didn't think much of it. And that was, like I said, it was between projects. And I started thinking about John Campbell again, and I went online and I found a website um, called Devil in My Closet website, uh, which is the title of one of John's songs. Um, and this guy, who was clearly a massive fan, I put up a whole load of stuff about John, pictures, record reviews, and all the rest of it, on the basis that he was writing a biography. So I thought, oh, okay, oh, fair enough, you know, move on. And eventually I moved on to a book about Jack Bruce. But last summer, so less than a year ago, I found myself in exactly the same position. I was just mooching through my archives and bits of paper and stuff. And I pulled out something that I must have printed off from this website all those years ago before I realized that there was someone writing a book. Um, so I thought, oh, okay. So I go back online. There's no website now called Devil in My Closet. It's gone. No, and went into Amazon. No book has ever been written. And then in the way of things, I came across the John Campbell Tribute group on Facebook. And I kind of thought, okay, let's just test the water here. So I just posted something up there and said, look, you know, I'm interested in writing a book about, about um, you know, I've done this, I've done that. And, and people responded very well. Slight problem there I had, it's the same problem with Eric. when. Some members of the family did a bit of a Google on me <laughs> and found out what my background was. Um, and John also, you know, there were rumours about how he died of drug overdoses and stuff. And again, I had to kind of calm the, still the waters on all of this. 
but it was again important that I got, in this case, John's uh, widow and his brother on side in the project, um, demonstrated to them that my intentions were honourable in bringing this guy out into the light. And it's been a fascinating process of actually trying to find information, unlike everyone else I've written about, where there was a lot of information, and in some cases, whole books have been written and all the rest of it. Nothing, very little, some record reviews, you know, constant reviews, a couple of longish interviews, a few interviews with John before, not that long before he died. And what I began to put together was this quite fascinating narrative arc of a guy who almost died when he was a teenager in a car um, and was confined to home for quite a long time and began to discover music in the process of the kind of rehabilitation, if you like. But as lots of kids were doing, we're talking about 1967, 68, millions of kids were messing around with guitars and, and you know, wanting to be bands and doing all of that. But very few of them, I mean, as you go along the lines from, yeah, let's get a band together, man, you know, in the garage, you know, upstairs in the bedroom, through to actually getting a record deal and going on the road, you can see the proportion of people that actually pull that one off gets incredibly low. But it's, I mean, I've, I've got to go through a process, really, of, of writing down in my, all the stuff that's in my head about this at the moment, because I'm, the guy was, had he could have turned out to be a professional pool player had he not damaged his eye in that road crash. He was a master close-up magician <laughs> in terms of card tricks. People were absolutely astonished at what he could do. But what he eventually became was a quite unique blues guitar player who somehow traversed that gap between the classic blues players, Lightning Hopkins was his big idol, but the other guys as well, Mance Lipcomb, Robert Pete Williams, all of those guys on the one hand, and the Stevie Ray Vaughan's, George Thorogood, Jeff Healy, uh, 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 the other. John somehow traversed all of, uh, of that, was playing with Lightning Hopkins' national steel guitar on stage with an with a electronic pickup on it, and nobody was doing anything like that. But he had, he had, I mean, if, if your readers go online, you'll see on YouTube, there'll be clips of John, John playing with his band. But this was, a, this was an unusual guy. I mean, everyone, I haven't heard a bad word about him yet. And I've interviewed about 40 or 50 people. He was a Southern gentleman. He was a classic Southern gentleman. He had this drawly kind of voice, which when he moved from Shreveport to New York, they couldn't get over this. This yes. accent is just amazing. He was rail thin, very gaunt, long hair. He had, you know, he literally had a sort of a, a, mo a Grigory bag with him because he was big friends with Dr. John. And he became very good friends with the vice president of the New York Hells Angels. He had Keith Richard coming to see him at these small clubs and declaring that he was a effing monster <laughs> he had mick taylor coming there asking him how the hell would you play league a slide guitar like that can you show me and 
he was like a sucker force of nature. It had all these people kind of, they used to call it, the club he used to play was called Crossroads in Huston Street in New York. They called it John's Church. It started out as a, Viet, a failing Vietnamese restaurant. John just rocked up one day and, and they gave him, said, yeah, go and play if you like. Within however many weeks or months, they changed the name to Crossroads, this place. John's suggestion. They were queuing down the street to get in. You had like film directors and celebrities and, and Malcolm Forbes, the Malcolm Forbes, the. turning up with all his biker mates in their Harley Davidsons. I mean, it was just, because I haven't actually started writing yet, um, that I read somewhere, somebody a famous, I think it wasn't actually anyone famous. Somebody said, I write so that I know what I think. <laughs> and I think that that is actually how I work in the way, because I've got piles of notes all over where I'm sitting now is piles of notes, books about blues, histories of Shreveport. It, you know, found out a lot about Shreveport in Louisiana and East yeah. Texas. Yeah. Well, like I said, that's what brought us together as you were doing yeah. some research my, on my, music connections and KOKA uh, radio and yeah, KOKA radio. Yeah, my geography is getting pretty good. And I've had people from the Memorial Library in Shreveport, the National Archive of Louisiana. They've all been really helpful sending me old pictures of, uh, of Shreveport, how it used to be. The other interesting thing about John was, was he came from an interesting background. I mean, his mother's grandfather was governor of Texas. His, his great-grandfather and grandfather um, knew Huey Long, the influence mm. <laughs> Louisiana governor and kind of got you know construction contracts through their not association with him so there's a whole thing going on in the background here yeah. which finishes up with with this singular blues musician who died literally on the cusp of becoming a seriously well-known blues rock musician uh, he died in his sleep just at the point when the band had got to the point when they were going to do a huge tour with Neil Young and Pearl Jam and gone. Mm. Um, so, um, but, but I've got a lot to process. I yes, think the best yes. way of describing it at the moment is I've got a lot, a to, lot process. to process. Well, and I'm sure once this uh, podcast goes live, all my other friends and family mm. and so forth, who will probably be, uh, you know, maybe a few years older, you know, the class of 69 or 70 at Captain Shreve High School. And you know, he pre previously went to Bird, he my did. alma mater. Uh, so, you know, never know which friends are going to come out of the woodwork and go, John Campbell, I knew that guy. I, I tell you, indeed, uh, there's a good point here. And this has happened to me a lot. And it's happened a lot with this book. You have a list of people that you want to talk to. So you talk to someone and they say, yeah, I knew John quite well. But the person you really want to talk That's to. That's right. <laughs> He's not on your list. That's how it's going to happen. It gets longer, right. and longer and uh, longer. And then the other thing is a lot of people say to you, well, you have an interview with them. It lasts 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour. And they say, oh, I probably haven't helped you very much. And I always say to people, look, I go back to the jigsaw puzzle analogy that every interview I do, somebody gives you something. It might be a little anecdote or a quote or a little insight 
that you wouldn't have probably got from anyone else. Um, and it, it might be just a few seconds out of a half hour interview, but it doesn't matter because you've, you've got that little nugget. Yeah. And then you, that's a little hook to hang a little something on when you actually start the daunting job of putting all this lot together. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and Harry, you're reminding me, and as we conclude, I just wanted to see if you could share with our listeners, those people who might be, you know, they're looking for that project or they've been sitting on a project. I mean, you you were thinking about this for a while yeah. and you kind of put it to the side and said, well, maybe somebody else is doing it and now have come back to it. You know, what, what insight from that experience would you share with our listeners who might be saying, I've been thinking about this, but I haven't really got it off the ground? Well, I suppose a lot depends on what it is you're thinking that you're, you, you're wanting to do. I mean, the way I started all of this in the first place was I was doing a really boring job. <laughs> I thought I started this really boring job and thought, my God. Um, is this it? <laughs> yeah. Am I just going to go home, make dinner, watch television, go to bed, get up and do this all Do it again. again. <laughs> well, the answer was yes, because I had to eat and you know, put food on the table. But the point was, well, what else can you do? How do you express yourself in a different kind of way? And I can't, I can't paint, I can't draw, I can't, although I have been, a, I could say, I'm a, I've been a drummer in various bands, so people would say, well, you're not a musician either, but, you know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a different <laughs> conversation. But I thought, well, the only thing I felt I could do was write. English was always my best subject at school, and I'd written bits and pieces. So, okay, so what are you going to write about? Well, what, what are you interested in? We're interested in music. Yeah, okay. And, and then I found a subject to write about. I found, I found a musician called Graham Bond, who I doubt too many of your people would have heard about. Although funnily enough, the book that I wrote about Graham, I get requests for this book via Amazon from the strangest places, you know, kind of deep in Texas and Arkansas and Arizona. And I'm thinking, how the hell do you know about an obscure British R&B musician? But they do. They do. Um, and um, and so I kind of started tentatively on this and trying to find people to talk to. So I think the point is, it, if you're writing nonfiction, which is what I do, um, fiction is entirely different kind of nightmares as far as I'm concerned. But when it comes to nonfiction, you obviously need to write about what you know about. But I think it's also important to write about what you care about as well because you've got to put yourself into this. Now, I try, I try not to put myself into these books, but I hope that my enthusiasm for the music and the musicians involved comes across, but you won't see I, I, I dotted through these books because you know, I'm tapping on the window of somebody else's life. So I'm kind of stepping back but putting my enthusiasms, if you like, into this and trying to tell a story. So it very much depends what it is you're trying to do. Um, but you, 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 you know, what I say, a, a writer writes. A writer doesn't sit and think about things. <laughs> a writer writes. Uh, um, I, and I like how you say, you know, your enthusiasm and your passion yeah. for the subject 
you know, is a driving force that you do a big yeah, ingredient just, to the work. Just start making some notes and thoughts. It could be about skateboarding or mountaineering or a memoir. A lot of people do that, you know, interest, you know, and just find a way to express yourself. I, I hope I write to be read, but a lot of people use writing as simple therapy, as a simple, you know, a lot of people keep diaries, you know, just a, a simple way of expressing yourself, which perhaps no one else will ever read. In a way, it doesn't matter. Matters to me, of course. <laughs> it might not matter to other people. I do write to be read. I, I will be absolutely honest about that. Yeah, fantastic. Well, <laughs> listeners, my guest has been Harry Shapiro. It's been a fantastic conversation, Harry. We, we've talked about his work about Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Jack Bruce, and so many others, as people you might know. But also, as you just mentioned, Graham Bond and your new project on John Campbell, musicians that you may not know, but you will know. And when you read them, you will be inspired by them as well. So, Harry, thanks again for being on our show. Oh, it's been great fun. And keep us posted on the project. We're looking forward to seeing (laughs) it. Very good. And listeners, please come back for our next episode. We'll continue our around the world travels to talk to creative artists of all kind, authors, musicians, and songwriters, and also in the culinary arts and in the performing arts, creatives of all type who are coming up with original thinking and inspirational ideas, but also organizing those ideas and making the connections and gaining the confidence to launch their work out into the world. So join me again. I'm Mark Stenson. We've been Unlocking Your World of Creativity. We'll see you next time. Unlocking Your World of Creativity with Mark Stinson. Copyright 2021. We've created a special offer just for listeners of the podcast. You can get our book, A World of Creativity. Paperback is at a special price of $5.98. And the Kindle version is only 99 cents. Go to my website, mark-stinson.com. The book is featured on the homepage. You can click it and go to Amazon, mark-stinson.com and enjoy the book.